picking up where we left off last week, talking about a better hope that we are given, a better hope that is introduced in the new covenant. Let's go back to our text in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14 today. If you get time later on today, you can go and read the entire chapter 3 and maybe even into 4 a little bit of Galatians and you can get a little bit more of Paul's, Paul's uh, words himself about the subject that we're talking about today. But for today, we're going we're gonna, to um, stick with Galatians 3, 10 through 14. Here we go. This is the word of the Lord. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that my... Uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you this morning that you would send your word forth in power and in authority to bring transformation to our hearts and to our minds, to our thoughts and to our desires. I ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so last week we talked about, we started talking about the old covenant and the new covenant, about the law and the promise. And we're gonna continue with that today. We, we talked last week about the purpose of the law and the purpose of the sacrificial system. And we talked about how it was temporary by design. So some people say, well, you know, why did God even set up the law? It was temporary by design. And, and it was, we compared it to scaffolding, like when you're building a house, we compared it to a form of a foundation when you're pouring, when you're setting a foundation, you put up a form and then you take the form down. But the goal is the foundation. The goal is the house. And so the law, the sacrificial system was not meant to give us righteousness. The law was never meant to give us righteousness just like going to school isn't meant to give you a brain. You don't go to school to get a brain. It was meant to position us for redemption and salvation in part by magnifying our sinfulness compared to holy God. We're gonna pick back up where we left off, so um, we're gonna get into a little bit of review and then we're gonna get into briefly the life of Martin Luther because we talked about uh, the, we're gonna kind of intro the Reformation. The next few weeks is gonna be about the Reformation and about um, that, we're celebrating the 500 year anniversary of that incredible time in history and what uh, that means for us today. And so we're going to get into a little bit of the background and history of Martin Luther, just a little bit. And then we're going to come back around. We're going to come back around to the glorious wonder of the good news of the new covenant, the good news of a better hope. All right. So go with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter eight. Flip over to Hebrews chapter eight. I want you to see this in your own Bible. Hebrews chapter 8, in verses 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7 says uh, this, but it is as Christ has obtained, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So the author says, better promises. And he mentions that the first covenant was not faultless. There's a fault somewhere. The first covenant, there is a fault somewhere. And so the question is, where did the fault lie? Where was the fault? Was the law in and of itself flawed or evil? No, Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter seven, verse seven. He says, what shall we say then? Was that the law is sin? 
By no means. The law is not the problem. The law is not sin. The law is not flawed. The law is not evil. So if we keep going, look at the very next verse in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. All right, look at this. He keeps going. He says uh, in verse 7, for the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them. For he finds fault with them. And this verse gives us our answer. Where's the fault? Is it in the law? No. Where's the fault? In them, in us. The fault is with us as the would-be law keepers. Or better, the law breakers. That's what we are. We are law breakers. So the law, the old covenant is not flawed. The law is not evil. We are flawed and we are evil. And the law by nature could not remedy that. It could not, the law could not give us life. The law could not make us righteous. We were dead in sin and the law could could not, cannot make us alive to God. So the new covenant is better because the promises are better. The author of Hebrews says, better promises. The promises are better because they actually deal with us. The new covenant, unlike the old, goes to the heart of the issue. It goes to the heart. And so this was the purpose of the law, to reveal our depravity, to reveal our desperate condition, and to position us for redemption and salvation through Christ. It was not for one moment meant to bring us salvation through our own attempts at righteousness and holiness, okay? When Jesus came and he began his ministry, this is what he said. He said things like this. If you hate in your heart, if you hate in your heart, you've committed murder. You've broken the law that says do not murder. If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. You've broken the law that says do not commit adultery. And so there has to be a heart change. Jesus, uh, I mean, uh, a pastor named James Jordan, he says this. I read this quote last week, but I'll read it again. Galatians 4.1 says that the people of, in the old covenant were like children. Galatians 3.24 says that the law was like a tutor for children. The law then was a simplified accommodation a simplified accommodation for children. We expect more from adults than from children, right? Mm-hmm. If you guys start acting like my kids might start acting like later on, it's not going to be acceptable. We maybe tolerate it a little bit more when the kids start to get squirmy and whiny and get conked, go, you know, lay down on the seats and get conked out. But I'm telling you, if you grown-ups start doing that, we're going to look at you funny, I promise you. And we should. So the law is a simplified accommodation for children because we expect more from adults than from children. He goes on and says this. Adults have a greater responsibilities and are more accountable than children. Thus, the new covenant law is actually much tougher to obey because it makes so many demands on inward attitudes. The new covenant is tougher to obey. Why? Because it makes tougher demands on inward attitudes. Notice this, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, what does he do? He references back to the law of Moses. So um, he's, somebody asked him, what are the greatest commandments? What's the greatest commandment? And we said last week that the new covenant is the uh, true heavenly covenant, right? The new covenant is the true heavenly covenant. It is the uh, covenant that the old covenant, the law and the sacrificial system was copying. It was shadowing. When God set up animal sacrifices, he's shadowing. He's copying something else. When God told Moses how to build the tabernacle, the temporary house for him, he was shadowing, copying what God showed him from the heavens. So the new covenant is the heavenly covenant. The old covenant is the heavenly shadow covenant. Okay? And so um, Jesus goes back to the law of Moses when he's asked what the greatest commandment was. And look at, what, look at what this says. Look at these references. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. He answers this question and he points to this reality that is evidenced in the law that inward attitudes must be dealt with. Listen to this. He says, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6 and this is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your, what? Heart. Heart. Explicit there. 
You don't even have to try. It's about the heart. And then the other commandment he quotes is Leviticus 19.18. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So even the law of God was letting us know exactly, exactly what the prophet Jeremiah would later uh, repeat, would later report to us and tell us. He says, our hearts must be transformed. Jeremiah says this. Our hearts must be written on. They must be written on. So in Hebrews 8, 8 through 9, the author of Hebrews quotes that part of Jeremiah. He quotes the prophet and he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. In those days, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will write them on their hearts. Go with me to Exodus 32. Real quick, we're going to look at this. It's just so cool. Exodus 32, 15 and 19. Exodus 32, 15 through 19. I want, to, I want to show you this because it's just really cool. This is the, this is the chapter where, um, where Moses is coming down from the mountain. He's been given the Ten Commandments, and he comes down from the mountain, all right? 32, 15 through 19. Listen to this. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. The tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. What is being stressed to us there? God did this. Where did he do this work? On the tablets. On the front of the tablet, on the back of the tablet. He wrote this on the tablets. This is the work of God on the tablets. He goes on. Look. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf, the golden calf, and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. What did Moses do? God gave Moses the rules written on stone and he comes down the mountain with these laws written on tablets on stone in his hands and he comes down he finds the people were sinning with the golden calf greatly sinning greatly he says and they and he realizes they've already broken the word of God that they just promised to keep they promised to keep the word of God they said we will do this and Moses sprinkles blood on them he say, they say we promise we'll do this he goes up and he receives the ten commandments written by God on tablets of stone on front and back. And Moses comes down with these tablets where? In his hands. And he sees the, he sees the idolatry and in his righteous anger, what does Moses do? Throws them down and they break. He, he throws the divine commandments, the laws of God from his hands and he breaks the law of God. Moses did not just throw a temper tantrum. Moses did not just lose his temper. What happened? They broke the law. Moses broke the law. Moses, from his hands, the, God wrote this law on stone. It's in his hands. And he takes it from his hands and he throws it down. He breaks the law. This is, you, you see how elementary this is, this is all uh, showing us. It's all so elementary and external. It's shadowing and it's copying the, the original. God conveys a message and the people hear it with their ears and they do it with their hands. And this is reiterated in Hebrews when he says this. He says, God took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. The old covenant is, is in our hands. The old covenant is in our hands. Now, in a sense, it is hinging. In a sense, the old covenant is hinging on our obedience hinging on our obedience okay because we made a promise we got to keep that promise and if we don't you will pay and so the old covenant is 
is in our hands and it is in this really literal sense hinging on our obedience and our, on our holiness. And this is temporary. This is a shadow covenant and it is sealed how? It is sealed by what? By the blood of animals. By the blood of animals. But we would not keep the law. We would not keep our promise and we could not keep our promise and we didn't want to obey. We could not obey sufficiently even if we did want to and, and so there's this animal blood that's prescribed in the old covenant. God says, sprinkle the blood of animals. Shed the blood of animals. But this prescribed animal blood was never going to heal us. It was never going to heal our sin-sick hearts. It never was. If it was meant to heal our sin-sick hearts, the Bible says later in, in the New Testament, then Jesus died for no reason. The law, the animals, the, sacrifice, the sacrificial system was never meant to heal our sin-sick hearts. It never could. And this did not catch God off guard. This did not catch God off guard. He knew this about us, that we are lawbreakers. He knew that we are fickle people who do not keep our word. He knew this, and in his divine forbearance, as it says in Romans 3.25, he passed over former sins. He patiently accepted the blood of animals as a means to temporarily stay mankind's just and lethal sentence of death. So as we anticipated the perfect blood of the true lamb that was yet to come, what does God do? As we are anticipating the true blood of the true lamb of God, God passes over former sins. Passes over former sins by the blood of animals. In fact, God's grace is evidence at the very beginning of mankind's fall. When God promised to uh, Adam that he would die if he disobeyed, do you remember that? God says, the day you eat of it, you shall die. What does Adam and Eve do? What do they do? Eat it! For crying out loud, one, one no in the whole world, literally, the whole world, one no. What do they do? The one thing God told them not to do. And he says, the day you eat of it, you shall die. After Adam and Eve sin, when God finds his children cowering in fear, you can probably remember it from the stories. God goes back walking through the garden. He finds his children cowering, hiding in fear, hiding from their holy creator God, attempting to cover their sin and cover their shame with what? Do you remember? Leaves. Leaves. <laughs> yeah. Leaves. And so what does their heavenly father do? You say, hey, that's some nice clothes you got there. Where'd you get them? No. He sheds the blood of an animal. He covers them and he drives them out of the land. The, and this, by the way, at the very beginning of the Bible is our first glimpse of the Passover Exodus motif that we find throughout the scriptures. The Passover Exodus motif. God kills an animal, the blood covers, and he drives them out of the land. And, and so Father God sacrifices the animal to temporarily cover them until when? until their conquering lamb would come to utterly save them. This is what he promised uh, the, the man, the woman, and the serpent. He said, there is coming a dragon slayer, a head crusher snake. He's gonna crush your head and you will bruise his heel. But he's coming. And so they waited. God temporarily covered them until their true lamb, the true blood would come that would take away their sin would come. So everything about the old covenant magnified the infinite separation between a holy, righteous, just God and a sinful, depraved, and desperate people. And yet, it also pointed to the necessity and the inevitability of a merciful and perfect redeemer. That temporary system pointed us to the necessity of a savior, but it also pointed us to the inevitability of a savior. In other words, we know from that system that Jesus is coming, that the lamb is coming because this can't satisfy God's justice. So in constant repetition, God's people had to rely on the blood of animals every time they failed at keeping even one of God's just decrees, even one of God's laws. So you heard it in our text in Galatians today, cursed be everyone who does not abide by what? By all things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. Well, I only break, I only break one of them. 
listen, there's a lot of rules and I only break a few, but I got more good than bad. God says, cursed are you if you do not keep all of them, all of them. So do you see how when we see our sinfulness in light of God's holiness, we are left utterly undone. And so how devastatingly hopeless our salvation, our self-salvation projects really are. You try and work your way to God. You try and save yourself. You try and work by your own righteousness to to gain God's favor. You are gonna find yourself hopeless, hopeless. We can never be good enough. This was the situation of many, many, many in the church at the time of the Reformation. Hopelessly chasing salvation by their own strength and merit. And this was the situation of Martin Luther, the German reformer, the great German reformer who who began the Protestant Reformation even, even unknowingly. All right, so a little history here. It was July 1505, July 1505, Luther finds himself caught in a terrible thunderstorm. And so lightning strikes nearby him, knocks him to the ground, and in the state of terror, he cries out. He cries out to St. Anne, Saint Anne, who's the patron saint of miners because his dad was a copper miner. And he cries out to, the, to Saint Anne, the patron saint of miners, and he says, help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. He's caught in the thunderstorm. He's terrified. He gets knocked down because lightning strikes close by. And he says, help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. Foxhole prayer, right? Two weeks after that life-altering storm, Luther made good on his promise. And he entered an Augustinian monastery and it was here that Luther began to wrestle with God. He says this, when I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other very rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. At this point, Luther was not much different than the corrupt church he would soon be protesting, right? They were both on this mission of self-justification, of self-salvation, missing the gospel of God's sovereign grace found throughout the scriptures. From Genesis, the story of Adam, God covering them graciously all the way through Revelation. In 1512... Martin Luther received his Doctor of Theology degree and was appointed Professor of the Bible. Now, it's really interesting to note, it's really interesting that in the medieval church, to become a professor at a university, you had to take an oath. You had to take an oath. And and all these oaths included a promise to obey the Pope and to obey the bishops, but not with the Doctor of Theology. Not for them. The Doctor of Theology took an oath, but it was taken to God directly. It was taken to God directly, not with a promise to obey popes or bishops. It was taken with a promise to be faithful to the scripture, to teach his word faithfully. And so after the Reformation was well on its way and Luther had been awarded the reputation of rebel in the Roman Catholic Church, at one point he responds to his critics and he reminds them of his oath to be faithful to the word of God alone. And, and in his infamously sarcastic way, he reminds them that he only did what the church asked him to do. <laughs> he says, I'm only doing what you asked me to do. I'm being faithful to the word of God. So some of the specific circumstances that set Luther off on his protest against Rome were issues surrounding the Roman Catholic teaching of penance and the practice of selling indulgences. Uh, penance is still a, a, a major part of Catholic doctrine today. It, it's when you uh, confess to a priest and you are given, you know, so many prayers to pray, that is penance. That is an act of penance, of satisfaction. You must do this and, and show you are remorseful and do this and then you will be forgiven. Um, If you were in Sunday school a few weeks ago, you have heard Robert Godfrey teach us the following regarding Roman Catholic doctrine. I'm going to give you three points that he taught us. Number one, to be forgiven for sins committed after the cleansing of baptism, a person must first experience genuine remorse for sins. All right? Number two, the contrite sinner would then confess his or her sins to a priest who would grant instruction and absolution. You know, go say so, you know, so many... uh, uh, Hail Marys or Our Fathers or whatever. Or in, at that time, any number of different things. And number three, finally, a person would be expected to perform specific tasks to p- 
penance to demonstrate repentance and pay the temporal penalties of his or her sin. It was never meant to be, it was never taught that it was forgiveness of sin. Like it wasn't actually meant to be forgiveness of sin, but it was a payment for the temporal penalties for your sin. And so it was easily misunderstood and misconstrued in the day to be forgiveness of sin. And the church was apparently fine enough with that uh, misunderstanding. It was also the case that leading up to the time of the Reformation, the buying and selling of indulgences had become commonplace. And again, uh, Mr. Robert Godfrey enlightens us. I'm going to read you three more points. Number one, through the purchase of an indulgence, a person was believed to be exempt from the duties associated with penance. So you can either do penance or you could buy this indulgence. Number two, many people came to understand the indulgences as a church-sanctioned means of purchasing forgiveness for one's sins. Even though that's not what the church actually taught officially, that's what many people came to understand. And number three, eventually indulgences came to be sold as an alleged means of releasing a deceased person's soul from purgatory into heaven. I say, you can buy this and you can, you know, your grandmother who's stuck down there in purgatory buy this indulgence and she goes to heaven. Or you don't have to buy it and you can just let her stay down there waiting and waiting and waiting, you mean person. And so it came to be this way to get deceased people out of purgatory into heaven. Um, another interesting example from the period is butter. In, in a, a book called Butter, A Rich History, the author points out that Rome... The church at Rome had forbidden the eating of meat, eggs, milk, butter, and cheese for what totaled something like half the year. For half the year, the church said, no milk, uh, eggs, butter, cheese, or meat. And they did this because they believed that these foods, unlike fish and oil, these foods led to, and I quote, great incentive to lust. You eat butter on your toast, you're just asking for greater incentive to lust and to sin. At, at first, it was only for monks, that this, this prohibition was only for monks because they were supposed to be celibate. And so they say, well, let's try and curb that sexual inclination and stop eating butter because that'll make you lust. But eventually this uh, went on to the whole church and it was easy enough for Rome and other Mediterranean regions where fish and oil were abundant, right? They lived on the beach, they lived on the coast, they lived in these more uh, Mediterranean regions and so it was easy enough for them. But for dairy-rich countries like Germany and France, this was, not, this, was, this was not as easy. It was a very different story. And so to the wealthy, what happened was the church would grant these things called dispensations to the wealthy. If you had enough money to pay up, you were allowed to pay money in order to indulge. It's kind of like carbon tax. If you have a big business, you get taxed, but you can buy more grace. You know, you can pay us more tax and we'll let you pollute more. You know, that's what they say. It was the same thing. The church said, you can pay these dispensations and we'll let you go ahead and keep eating your butter and you'll be fine. And so for poor parishioners, for poor people in the church, in Martin Luther's country in Germany who relied heavily on these quote lust inducing foods for basic sustenance the prohibition was was a great burden it it made Martin Luther very angry and so as the church ramped up the selling of in, of plenary indulgences this was a, an indulgence that was for past and future sins for past and future sins, they ramped up the selling of these plenary indulgences to help the Pope pay for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. They said, we need more money to build this basilica. Let's sell indulgences. That's what they did. They ramped this up. They need more money to build the basilica. And so it, this became a way for those poor people to, quote, buy forgiveness. To buy forgiveness, taking comfort. They would buy this indulgence so they could take comfort in this piece of paper that told them they were okay with God. They were okay with the church. Why? Because they've paid up. Because look, I've paid. I've got this plenary indulgence and I'm okay. On October 31st, 1517, enraged and disgusted by the church-sanctioned abuse, Martin Luther was determined that there must be a public debate on the matter. And as he nailed his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg, he unknowingly began the Protestant Reformation. 
Now, according to what Luther later wrote, at this point in time, he hadn't experienced conversion, and he, and he doesn't until 1518 or 1519. However, regardless of the exact timing of Luther's conversion, it's clear that by this point, he's at least well on his way. And what is more important than the specific timing of when he came to understand his conversion moment, what he came to see by faith That's what's important. What he came to see and understand as he wrestled with God and wrestled with the word of God. And specifically, he wrestled at this place in Romans chapter one, verse 17. And and the phrase is, the righteous shall live by faith. Drove him crazy. Listen to what he says about it. He says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction, by my acts of penance. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Without having God add pain to pain by the gospel threatening us with righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted, that place in Romans 117. And he says this, he goes on, he says, at last by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteous Righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There's a total other face to the entire scripture. There, a total other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. So Luther's new understanding of free justification, free justification by faith alone became one of the central tenets of the Reformation. And it contradicted Rome's teaching unofficially that justification was by faith and works. And so naturally, Luther was condemned for preaching what the Pope himself labeled dangerous doctrines. The Pope said, that's dangerous, Luther. Stop preaching it. Stop teaching it. Part of the confusion, part of the confusion of the church at the time regarding the doctrine of justification stemmed from the unfortunate fact that in the early centuries after Christ ascended and the church you know was was getting started and getting formed in the earlier centuries doctrine was being studied and developed by what what what's known as the latin fathers by uh, these guys were studying doctrine and developing doctrine not from the original language. They weren't doing it from the Hebrew text, from the Greek text in which the New Testament manuscripts are written. They were doing it. They were developing doctrine based on the Latin translations of those texts. And that was a problem. And I'll tell you why. Uh, Well, one year before uh, Luther nails his thesis to the door in 1517. He nails him to the door in 1517. One year before, it's no coincidence that um, in 1516, for the first time ever, for the first time ever, someone developed a translation of the Bible, a, a publication of the Bible, a Greek and Latin side by side published. So one year earlier, this is this had been uh, done for the first time ever, a Greek and a Latin translation. So Luther gets his hands on this copy of scriptures, the Greek and the Latin together, and he starts, to, he starts to study and starts to look for himself. The Latin that he knew and the Greek side by side. And so he gets a hand on this copy and he's studying the call of Christ to repent in Matthew 4, 17. And, and that's, that says this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus says this. And so Luther noticed that in the Latin the translation of repentance was do penance. So it said, do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
He looks over to the Greek translation. He looks over to the Greek side of the page and he sees a different word. It's a Greek word, metaneo. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven. And he says, that's not penance. That has nothing to do with what we've come to understand as penance. What is this? Do penance for the kingdom of heaven as at hand. And so he looks and he says, this isn't right. And he eventually, what happens is he eventually comes to understand, not right then in that moment, but he eventually comes to understand that the tradition, the doctrine of penance was completely absent from the teachings of scripture. It was a mistake. The church made a mistake. In fact, repentance in the scriptures, we know, is granted by God. We see this in Acts eleven eighteen. Repentance is granted by God, not by a priest. When... This is to say exactly what we talked about last week, right? Exactly what we talked about last week, that we are saved by grace through faith, that this is not of our own doing. It is a gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. Repentance, repentance is a change of mind. Repentance is a new set of eyes. Repentance is a new heart to believe Repentance is when a, a slave is translated from darkness to become a son in the light. When a slave is translated from darkness to become a son in the light, repentance and belief occur when a sinner is given a new heart. Repentance and belief occur when a sinner is given a new heart. But even more fundamentally than that, listen, even more fundamentally than that, repentance is when a sinner is given a new father and a new name. That's repentance. When you are given a new father and a new name, you're given new eyes and new heart. You are given a new name and a new father. And so Martin Luther, he goes and he writes his thesis, 95 theses in 1517, October 31st. He nails them to the door. Very, he picked that day on purpose. We'll get into that another time. But he nails it to the door and the very first of his 95 thesis is this. When our Lord and Master, Christ Jesus, said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And the second thesis is this. The second one is this. This, this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance. That is confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. First two of his 95 theses. This is one of those crucial rediscoveries of the Reformation, a return and a rearticulation of the biblical doctrine that we are justified by faith alone and not by the works of the law, not by our own doing. Luther's self-salvation project was over. It was over. And now he and other reformers would go on to lead people away from the traditions of men, away from the doctrines of men, back to the word of God, back to the teaching of the scriptures, that indeed a new covenant has been enacted on better promises, that, it, that indeed a better hope has been introduced. Remember how desperate Luther was when he became a monk? he finally discovers that a better hope has been introduced. And it's not relying on his goodness, his becoming acceptable to God. So if you remember, under the old covenant, when one sinned intentionally or unintentionally, there must be an offering of blood. And so what would happen, the offender, the sinner would come, bring his offering, and he would put his hand on the head of the offering and the offering would then be killed while, while the uh, sinner, the offender, goes free. He brings his offering, he puts his head on the offering, and the offering is killed, blood is shed by the offering, and the sinner goes free. He walks. It was the freeness of God's grace that seemed scandalously impossible to the church of Martin Luther's day seemed impossible. That can't be right. And yet every price that men pay through their works of the law fall totally short of covering the debt that God demands. So what do we do? It cannot be free. It cannot be nothing. It cannot be I just touch this thing, it dies, and I walk. That can't be it. And yet every work of man in his 
attempt at righteousness falls utterly short of God's standard, of the price of the debt that God demands. And so, what do we do? This is the dilemma that the gospel, the new covenant, solves. Before Jesus came, God was patient with his people. In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins until he imputed them all to Christ. And so God could be just, listen, God could be just for not ignoring sin. God does not ignore sin. You don't get to walk. God does not ignore sin. And God could be the merciful justifier of the one who trusts in the blood of the Lamb of God, the one who has touched the head of the Lamb. (laughs) In the new covenant, we don't only impute our sin onto the sacrifice, okay? In the old covenant, we imputed the sin to the sacrifice and we go, we walk. In the new covenant, we don't only impute the sin onto the sacrifice. We do that, but that it doesn't stop there. Our sin is imputed to the lamb in the new covenant, but it doesn't stop there because this lamb is our head. We, we see this, for example, when Jesus heals the people in the, in, the, in the New Testament, we see, for example, a great example is the woman touches Jesus. What happens? What happens to the woman of, with the issue of blood when she touches Jesus? What happens? She gets healed. What doesn't happen? What was supposed to happen, what, what supposedly would have happened under the law is that when she touches Jesus, he becomes unclean. When Jesus touches the dead man, what happens? He comes to life. Jesus doesn't become unclean. And so this is so incredible. When we touch the lamb's head, not only is our sin imputed to him, his righteousness is imputed to us. He doesn't just become unclean. He does become unclean with our sin. The Bible makes that clear. He becomes sin for us. But his righteousness is imputed to us. His perfect righteousness. Because the Bible says he has the power of an indestructible life. And so when we touch him, not only is our sin imputed to him, his perfect righteousness is imputed to us. And so we are actually cleansed. We are actually given a new life. We are actually transformed once and for all time. He becomes our sin. uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He becomes our sin. Cursed in our place. And yet, as 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, he becomes our righteousness and our sanctification. So Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, died so we could die. And because our great high priest has the power of an indestructible life, that's what it says in Hebrews, he has the power of an indestructible life, death could not hold him. He died, but death could not hold him because he has the power of an indestructible life. Death could not hold him, and so because he lives again, because Jesus lives again, in him we too live again with the power of his indestructible life. Do you see that? Do you see that? This is why a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who also came from Germany, he said this. He said, when Christ calls a man, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. A call to come and die. We sang about it today. The better promise, you sinner must die. You must die. You do not get to touch the head of the sacrifice and walk free and live. You must die. That's good news, and I'll tell you why. Because by the mercy of the Father in sending his only begotten Son, you don't die alone. You don't die alone. You die with Christ. We die with Christ. We only, we only ever follow our big brother Jesus. We only ever follow our big brother Jesus and we are never alone. We never make our own way. We are only ever, always, 100% of the time following the one who goes before us. We're only always following Jesus and that means we are never alone. We do not die alone. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
I have been crucified with Christ. In Romans 6, 3, he says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. You must die. You have been crucified with Christ. When you, be, when you got baptized, Christian, you were baptized into his death. But this is the good news. It doesn't stop at death. It doesn't stop at death. In John 14, 19 through, 19 through 20, Jesus says this. He says, because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Do you catch that? Listen, because I live, you will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So let it be known today that if you die with Christ, you live eternally with him. Being a Christian, being a believer in Jesus, being a child of God, being a an heir of the promises that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. This means that the law of God has been internalized. The old covenant, God wrote it on tablets, front and back, and gave it to Moses, put it in his hands. And they come down, he comes down from the mountain, he sees the great sin, and he casts it from his hands. And, and Jeremiah the prophet laments, and he, he waits for the time, he says, that one day God will not write it on tablets of stone. He will write it on our hearts and put it in our minds. You can't drop it. You can't break it. (laughs) Being a Christian means that the law of God has been internalized. It has been written on our heart. It has been put into our mind. Which means that now we love We delight in the law of God. Read Psalm 119. David loves the law. He delights in the law. You say, how can you love and delight in the law? Because he has transformed our heart. He's shaped us like clay, changed our desires. And now we love and delight in this law. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, In Matthew 11, when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Righteousness has a name, Jesus. Righteousness has a name. True righteousness is not found in the things that we do or do not do. True righteousness is not found in the things that we do or do not do. True righteousness is credited to your account as you are yoked up with Jesus. As you are yoked up with Jesus, He is your righteousness. He is your righteousness. Righteousness. He is your big brother. He does all the heavy lifting. Righteousness is credited to you. He does all the heavy lifting. That's what he means when he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You get hooked up with him and he does the heavy lifting. His righteousness is perfect. And that righteousness is credited to your account, sinner And it is in Jesus, our brother, our righteousness that we rest in, in death and in life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. All right, we're going to get ready to come to the table now. And so as we prepare to come to this table, we are reminded that the Bible tells us that as we do this, when we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are proclaiming the Lord's death, but, but the sting has been removed. Because Jesus lives again, the sting of death has been removed. Because Jesus lives again, the tragedy of his death has been removed. And this is truly a celebration precisely because of the gospel that you just heard. This is a celebration. So if you've heard it a million times, my invitation is that you come trusting in Jesus.
If you, um, if you are a little one, little ones, if you are a little one, and you missed almost everything that we just talked about, that's all right. Your invitation is this. Come trusting in Jesus. If you've never heard or never believed this good news, repent of your righteous and your unrighteous sin and come trusting in Jesus. So Christian, come and welcome to Jesus. Please stand and receive your charge. Last week, I charged you, remember, if you were here last week and you remember, I charged you to be doing your part in growing and maturing as a Christian and specifically to be reading your Bible regularly. Remember, poor Bible reading is not a matter of no time, but rather a matter of not having your priorities straight. It's really easy for us to slip into this. I don't have time. I'm so busy. But what it boils down to at the end of the day is not having priorities straight. You have time to drink coffee, brush your teeth, take a shower. You have time to consume the word. Read it, listen to it. Okay? Plain and simple. So if you're not consuming the word of God regularly, you need to repent and start right away. Now, that being said, I want to warn you that just like we saw with Martin Luther, there's a way that you can go about reading your Bible or any number of Christian disciplines that is, that is all wrong. Okay? I want you to start reading your Bible if you're not. I want you to read it more if you read it some. All right? But there's a way you can go about doing that that is all wrong. And that's what I want to warn you about to, in today's charge. And, and I'm talking about when you do these works, when you do these good things to gain approval or love from God. And, and the, we do these things to seek to ease a guilty conscience. And so if you turn to anything else but the blood of Jesus, even if you turn to Bible reading, to fix your conscience, you're turning to a false savior. And that's idolatry and it will leave you hopeless. It will leave you desperate. Okay? So your charge is this. Jesus died so you could die. He lives so you can live. He is your righteousness. Rest in him. Delight in him. And when you are resting and delighting in God, you're going to find <coughs> that this necessarily includes things like consuming the word of God reading it, listening to it, whatever. When you are resting and delighting in God, it necessarily includes things like consuming the word of God. Okay, you're going to find that reading and listening to the Bible, when you are resting in God, reading and listening to the Bible is not a heavy burden. It is light and easy. Okay? So Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.